0: your Bible, I want you to open, join me in the book of Acts as we continue our series, our remarkable series. And as you are, we're turning to Acts chapter 18, and if you haven't been with us, or uh, if you have and you slept since last week, just as a reminder, we are in the midst of Paul's second missionary journey. And so as we're about to read in Acts chapter 18, you just may be reminded that he is gotten to a point where he's going from Athens now into Corinth. And so I'm going to read a decent chunk of Scripture to begin our time, and then we'll, we'll pray, and we'll jump in. So follow along with me. Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. After these things, he, Paul, left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, the, the emperor had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Just a quick side note, this is a true historical thing that you can find in documentation that the Emperor Claudius caused the Jews to leave Rome out of just the entire city because there was one named Christus who was causing a bit of a ruckus. This, but it's believed that it's Christ, that Christ was causing quite a bit of a disturbance. And so they have the Jews kicked out of Rome, and Aquila and Priscilla are now here in Corinth. So he came to them, Paul, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers, more specifically leather workers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade the Jews and the Greeks, which was Paul's MO, go into a city, there's a synagogue, go to the synagogue and teach and proclaim Christ. Verse 5, But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word. Now he's not having to do tent making, he's being provided for, he's being supported financially from the churches in Macedonia. That's from another part of Scripture, just trust me. So he began devoting himself completely to the Word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, "'Your blood be on your heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles.' Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, note this, he believed in the Lord with all of his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized." And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am, underline it, with you. And no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. We'll come back to that as well. So Paul settled there for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But while Gallio was proconsul or governor of Achaia, the Jews, with one accord, rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, the Bema seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or of vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters." He drove them away from the judgment seat. And then they took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would just... The presence of your spirit just invade this place that we would have uh, the ears to hear and the mind to understand your word and your truth. And where you're sitting right now, would you just pray, I realize that all of us come into this place with all kinds of things on our minds and hearts. Take just a moment and follow the words of Peter, that you would cast all your cares to Jesus right now so that you could hear what God has to say. And if you would, would you pray for me, that I would be a help to you as we look at the word today. Well, Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So it was the year 2015. It was one of the most difficult, but also life-changing years that Tiffany and I, my wife, that we were able uh, to experience. Whenever... 2015 happened. It started with possibly no longer going down the route of adoption because we'd been waiting two years for an adoption. We finally got word that an adoption was going to happen and that we'd been chosen. We went to the hospital, went through the whole ordeal, had a sweet little baby girl in our home for two weeks, and then that was crushed and didn't happen. The same time before all that took place, God was already at work in our heart and our lives as a couple to begin praying and considering moving from a place of comfort and familiarity and support, uh, structure, security, and to pack up what we had and follow what we believe, what we knew that God had called us to do, which was to be a part of uh, work, church work, ministry in Middle Tennessee. We didn't have all the answers, but we knew that God said go, and so we went. And sometimes when we hear God say to do something, we think that it's going to maybe be an easy path, it's going to be clear, it's going to be a yellow brick road, and you're going to go this way and that way, and it's going to be smooth, and you're going to have the sweet little lion and the sweet little scarecrow tin man. And sometimes you just find those crazy monkeys and the witch, and it's just difficult. It's not the easiest thing. In fact, it can be quite discouraging. And so throughout the process of 2015, we're dealing with the grief and the loss of that dream and that moment of that little girl that was taken from our home, and and then we knew that we were needing to leave the church that I had been pastoring and Tiffany had been a part of for the last eight years, and we were leaving an environment where we were loved and where we were cared for, but as we as we made our way out and as we were doing so. Uh, we knew that we needed to sell our home and we wanted to be transparent with the church. We didn't want it to be something to where, why is your house up for sale? That's kind of weird. Are you guys leaving? So we wanted to be transparent with them. Small town, you can't really get away with that kind of stuff. So you got to have those kinds of conversations. Church was incredibly supportive. They thought that we'd either go on the mission field or we would be a part of church planting works. So they weren't shocked, but at the same time, they were incredibly gracious, allowing us time to be able to sell our home. We get our home under contract and we are about a month from that being finalized when the seller or the buyer backed out and at that point it was so much else had gone on it was time for us to make the move even though we didn't have everything all figured out and i would like to say that when we made the move knowing that this is what god had for us to do that we showed up in middle tennessee and we had this wonderful place, and our house sold immediately right when we were driving away from Paul's Valley, Oklahoma. And it was like the Lord just said, bam, your house sold. You don't have to worry about it. And we just knew, man, we both got master's degrees. We're going to show up in Middle Tennessee. People are going to be asking us, will you work for me? And it was like, no, no, that's not going to happen. And uh, so that was a bit humbling and a little bit of an issue. But, but the thing that happened is in a moment of just a hard year— incredibly discouraged, a bit distressed, a bit distraught, tired, weak, emotionally drained. God brought someone into our life. Actually, he brought a lot of people into our life. But you know, when you're like that, I I can't be the only one who's ever had experiences like this. You know, when you're like that and it's just tough, it's easy to kind of become very insular, like insulated of yourself and be like, man, God, where are you? And sometimes we don't recognize there were actually a lot more people of the Lord around us than we realized, that were there for us, supporting us. We were just ready for the big miraculous moment. But there was a man by the name of Parker, Parker Bradley, who was a friend of my brother, essentially a stranger to me and Tiffany and us to him. And he said, uh, hey, your brother and sister-in-law are moving here. I know they're needing a place to stay. They can stay with me. And so we're living with this single 45-year-old man, celebrated our 10th anniversary. Downstairs. <laughs> and we're in this place where we're very humbled and we're frustrated and we're kind of broken a little bit. We had a lot of highs and lows of like, oh, we're living for the Lord. And like, but where are you at? And what we got from Parker was not just a moment of encouragement, it was a season of encouragement. Because in our mind, we thought, we'll be here for a moment. But God said, you're going to need to be there for a season. We were there, interestingly enough, Paul and Corinth a year and a half. We were there for a year and a half. We thought it might be two or three months at maximum. And here I am, a grown man with a wife, and I'm like, I can't provide for her. God's called me to be here to be a pastor. I'm not living out my purpose or my calling. But all the while, here's Parker giving us a roof over our head, not worrying about overwhelming us with rent, having meals with us, And he was one of the guys in my life that kept saying, every time I'd see him, he'd go, Pastor, when are you going to get to preach? I was like, that's a good question, Parker. He was always encouraging me and Tiffany. There are people in your life, sometimes we almost miss them because we are so overwhelmed and distraught with what we're going through. But I believe that God brings along the people in our life that we need to encourage us. And we need to be an encouragement to others. And so if you don't hear anything else today, that's really what I'm pulling from Acts 18. I don't think I'm trying to make something up because of some of the history that we know what Paul is going through. But the main idea for today is this idea. Encouragement is needed and encouragement is going to be given. Encouragement is needed and encouragement is going to be given. And so to kind of show you what I'm talking about, where we're at at this point is, can we pull up the map if we got that today? Um, uh, You know, I like my maps. And so... uh, I was actually going to use this today. I'm sorry, Zach, if this is yours, but I need a pointing stick. Someone said you need a pointing stick, so I got me a pointing stick. So what we have is, if you haven't been with us, just as kind of a reminder, here's Antioch. This is where Paul starts his second missionary journey. And he says, man, let's go back into Galatia, where these churches that we went on our first missionary trip, and we got to start those churches. Let's go encourage them. And then they get here, and then he's like, man, I would love to go into Bithynia or to Asia, but God prevents that. The Holy Spirit won't let him go. We don't know why. We have speculation, but we don't know. So finally, he gets a vision, a Macedonian vision of a man who's from Macedonia saying, Hey, come to us. So he goes west and he goes into Philippi and then he goes into what we saw last week Thessalonica, Berea. But while he's in Thessalonica, man, some awesome things are happening. People are coming to get, give their life to the Lord. But while he's in Thessalonica, some people don't like what he's doing. That seems to be the other MO that Paul is getting to go through find the synagogue proclaim the Christ. People get saved. Other people get mad. And so he's off. He's running. He makes his way to Berea. The Bereans received the word with eagerness and examination. But the people in Thessalonica who didn't like Paul heard about it, came running down to Berea. And they said, Paul, we got to get you out of here. The church does. This isn't a safe place. So now Paul, from what we understand, he leaves and two of his closest buddies, Silas and Timothy, they stay in Berea. Paul goes on his own. The way that I understand it is that there are probably some people went, that went with him, but it's almost like if you got someone who's going to drive you somewhere, you kind of don't really know them, but they're going to help you get to where you need to go. So he, he doesn't, he's, he's isolated. He's really alone in this moment. He makes his way down to Athens And when he's in Athens, we saw this last week, he has an incredible moment where he's by himself, but he sees that, man, these are some religious people, but their faith and their worship is to something that is a dead stone, a dead God. They need to know the true living God. So I'm gonna present to them the creator and point them to Jesus, the resurrection, and their need to repent because judgment is coming. But then from Athens, he goes to Corinth. And what we do sometimes is we look at the life of Paul and we go, man, Paul, that guy, he, he was just tough as brass, I think brass is pretty, we'll say iron, tough as iron. And so he, here's this tough guy. He never gets discouraged, never has any issue, but that, that's not the case. See, when he shows up in Corinth, there was this place called the Acro-Corinth. Can we show that picture if we have that? Do we have that? This is just some of the rubble of ancient Corinth. And up here on this big old hill, it was called the Acro-Corinth, which is basically uh, the city of, of ancient Corinth where like the temple of Aphrodite was. In Corinth, what Corinth was known for, this is what Paul is walking into. Corinth was known and had the reputation of being just a debaucherous, kind of very immoral, sensual type city. Because this city was one of the major populated places. Athens, not nearly as large as Corinth because Corinth is at a major crossroads, not only of a trade route by land, but also by sea. Like a ton of people, of travelers are coming into Corinth all the time. And what happens is, as part of some of the draw is those who were of the world were like, this is a place where I can get involved with a temple priestess, which is basically just another word for a temple prostitute. And so sexual immorality is just rampant in this place. This is the den that Paul walks into. He's already alone. He's already a bit discouraged. And you say, are you just making that up? And no, I'm not. Listen to these words from Paul. When he wrote to the church of Corinth, This is years later. This is is later on in his ministry, but he writes to him. And in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3, he's saying, And when I came to you, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Paul's like, I wasn't in a good spot when I showed up to your city. Yes, I'm a missionary and I'm on mission for the Lord, and sometimes we think, oh, well, they're fine. They're living for Jesus. Sometimes living for Jesus and being faithful is hard. And we become fearful and weak and tired and distressed or depressed. And this is kind of where Paul is at. It's in moments like that, that we need encouragement and we need God, especially in this moment where you, you guys, I think you'll you, you resonate and understand this. There are moments where it's like, I know in my head, God is good. And I know that he will never leave me or forsake me but I feel like, where are you at? Like, I I, I need that that sense or that feel that what I know to be true, I'm experiencing. And and right now I need that. I need encouragement. So that's the first thing we're gonna look at here this morning, encouragement that was needed specifically for all of us, but we're gonna look at Paul's situation. And what God does is God shows up. Paul needs encouragement and God shows up in, I'm gonna show us four different ways. One is this, he shows up with his people, God's people. Did you notice in verse two, it talks about Aquila and Priscilla. There's going to be a couple that we're going to look at a little bit more closely at the end of our time, but this is a new relationship. God has his people and he has new relationships ready and in store for Paul to be ministered to. It's not happenstance that they're here. Uh, They've been kicked out of Rome and they show up in Corinth and look at what they do for Paul. They give him a roof, they give him a job, they give him security, they give him a relationship, and he met him in church, more or less, a synagogue. <laughs> he didn't stop and say, "Oh, I miss Paul, I miss Silas and Timothy." He was like, "No, no, no. Here's a couple that's on board with Jesus. We're traveling together. We're gonna lock arms together. Same is true for us. If you're a part of this place, man, invest in relationships with one another. Even if you kind of know each other, man, develop in those relationships because we're gonna lock arms and we're gonna we're gonna go uh, together." The other thing that we find is in verse 5, there's old relationships that finally show up in Paul's life. And that's such good news. Sometimes when you get that phone call or that text from someone you haven't heard from a while, and you're like, man, why are they reaching out right now? Maybe that's what you needed to hear in that moment. And what you have in verse 5 is finally Silas and Timothy come down from Macedonia. And they don't just come down. We know from other scripture that they come down not only to be kind of in the presence of Paul and and just have that ministry to him in person— but the churches of Macedonia had collected an offering so that Paul could give his entire focus and attention to proclaiming the word. He, he's, he's, he, he, When he needed it, he had the occupation, the vocation to do some leather work, to do some tent making in order to be able to provide for himself. But now he's able to just give focused, 100% priority to the teaching, to the proclamation of the word of God. And that's that's what he does. And so, He has new relationships. He has old relationships. This isn't on the screen because I found this even this morning because I was looking at it as I always do on Sunday morning. Is In verse 10, uh, look at the end of that verse. In verse 10, it says, For I have many people in this city. That's interesting. What kind of people do you have in this city for me, Lord, so that way I don't feel alone and I'm encouraged? Well, listen to what Paul wrote about the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. When Paul shows up into Corinth, he has nothing really but strangers. By the time he leaves, he has family. I realize that some of the people that you work with, that you live down the street from, you're like, strangers, and they're kind of crazy, and they kind of bother me. It's true. They may be hard and hardened and hard of heart, but those strangers— can be dramatically transformed by the washing of the blood of Jesus and the renewal of the Holy Spirit in their life. And they will be strangers no more. They will be your brother or your sister in Christ. God is saying, Paul, man, you are not alone. I got people, my people all around you. Some of them, they aren't even my people yet, but they're going to be. They're going to be. You be faithful. I'll bring the people. I'll bring the encouragement. The second way he encourages is his presence. I told you to underline it in verse 10. But in verse nine, he gets this vision from the Lord and the Lord says, don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Don't be silent for I am with you. I don't have time. This is one of the things that I love to to talk about. This idea of with the presence of God is so essential for what we need encouragement for is we need someone to just kind of be there with us, to just kind of be in, in, in our presence. And so much of what we see, some of you may remember this from Mission Point Academy, our first session, um, is, is what we lost in the Garden of Eden wasn't the, the likeness of God as much as it was the presence of God. They're cast out from the presence of God, separated from God. And the rest of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is this story of God pursuing us to be with us. Not because He needs us, but because He wants us. He wants to be with us. And so you see throughout the rest of scripture, through the sacrificial system, through the building of the temple and the tabernacle, even when it's prophesied that Jesus is going to be born of a virgin and his name is going to be called Emmanuel, God with us, God the creator is going to come and dwell among his creation and be with us and then take our place of what we deserve for our penalty of sin and take that upon the cross, defeat it through the resurrection of the dead, and then live forevermore. Like that's what we have in him. And then he says, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to give you a promise and a seal and a comforter. My presence, the Holy Spirit is going to dwell within you. You're never alone. He is with us. And then we get to the new heaven and the new earth. And man, it's just kind of another unique way in which he is with us. It's going to be, it's going to be incredible. We just need to be there. Can I tell you one of the best things I've ever learned when it comes to just hardship, when you are distressed, we're discouraged, especially when we've gone through grief and loss. Sometimes we want to minister with words and sometimes words are needed, but sometimes the best thing you can do is just be there and just zip it. Because <laughs> we want to help. I think that's generally what we want to do or we want to share from our experiences, but right now, and that's their experience. So when you're coming around to encourage someone, And to love on someone, I think you care. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't be there. But sometimes the the thing that ministered to me the most when we've gone through some of the life that we've gone through and it hits you right between the eyes is somebody just just sitting with you. And then if I'm ready to talk, I might talk. I could give countless examples of that, of individuals in in our life. One of the best examples is this person didn't even sit with us, but their presence was incredibly felt. Uh, First child that we lost through miscarriage we were just crushed. Such a high, high, and then such an incredible low. One of our neighbors who attended our church back in Oklahoma, she knew that there was a particular movie theater that we really enjoyed. It was kind of one of those fancy ones. There's like three in the country, and for whatever reason, Mr. Warren decided to build one, build one near us. And we were like, thank you, Mr. Warren. And we loved just escaping and being able to go there. And we just had a knock on the door there was a little note. We went out to the mailbox, and there were just some gift certificates to this theater. And for us, it was perfect because of our grief and our loss. What we needed is we weren't ready to just be thrown back into society in the sense of it was so raw and fresh, but to be able to kind of creep back into society of being around people, but also being able to go do something that we enjoy to where we didn't, we didn't really have to deal with it in that moment. We're dealing with it, but at the same time, she knew exactly what we needed and Tiffany and I were talking about this yesterday because I was like, hey, do you have examples of people who have encouraged us over the course of our life? And she immediately said, Sharita. And I was like, do you even think she realizes, we told her how much of an impact those dinky little gift cards were, but they were so what we needed. It wasn't a, a poem or a note of you'll be fine. God is with you all the time and God is good. I, I didn't need that. I just needed your presence of... I care. I'm aware of what's going on with you. Sometimes it's one of the best things that we can do. Just let them know that you're there. That's what God does here. The, second, the third thing that God does when encouragement is needed in Paul's life is, look, God, God's plan. God has a plan. In, in verse 9 and 10, he shows up to Paul in a vision. He's like, here's my plan for you. Don't be afraid. Speak. Uh, don't be silent. I'm with you. No one's going to attack you. I know you've been accustomed to showing up to a city, talking in the synagogue, and some people receive Jesus, and other people, they come after you. It's like, you're going to be okay. That's the plan that I have from you. And friends, it is so good to hear from the Lord. And sometimes what we're waiting on is, where's my vision? I don't know. (laughs) Where's my bright light Damascus road? I don't know. But you know what I think is even more powerful than that is this. God speaks. One of the most Powerful things I ever learned while I was pastoring the church in Oklahoma is we went through a study called Experiencing God. Some of you maybe have gone through it. It's such an incredible study. And Dr. Blackaby does such a good job of saying, God speaks today, but he speaks by the Holy Spirit primarily through his word. Write this down. This is good. Because it's not mine. It's his. Through his word, prayer, people of God, and circumstances, but it's all because of the Holy Spirit. But here's where we get off sometimes as we go, well, I prayed and I felt like God was saying this. Someone said this into my life, spoke a word into my life, or the bird flew into my car, so I need to fly away, you know, to Venezuela, and that's what I need to do. It's like, careful. Those are powerful experiences, but if God's word contradicts any of those it's not from the Lord because God does not contradict himself. And the basis of what we have as a foundation of what does God have to say is his revelation, is his word. He's not going to contradict himself. So if he's like, you know what? That lifestyle that you want to live right now because you feel at peace about it and someone came into your life and they told you what you wanted to hear, that it's okay to live that way, to you know, identify in that kind of way, that's okay, you know? But it's completely contrary to the word of God. That's not God. That's not the Holy Spirit. That's a spirit, but it's not the Holy Spirit that's speaking that. So make sure that when we are seeking the plan of God, the will of God in our life, that you are rooted in the scripture of God to know what does God have to say. The other thing I'll say on this is because it's just good, and I, but I got to go quick, is, is in that same study, <clears throat> he also talked about the idea of knowing the will of God. And perhaps the two most often questions I get as a pastor is, how do I know that I'm saved? How do I know? And what is God's will for my life? Great questions. Ask them. But I love what Dr. Blackaby does is he says, when asking what is God's will for my life, it's a fair question, but he said, shorten it for just a moment before you make it about you. Just simply ask, what is God's will? Just find out what he says in scripture. Know what his will is. And his will is not for us to make a ton of money and get retired and just love on our grandbabies and just do those are things are all fine they're great but god's will is that his name be glorified and that his image be be multiplied and that that his name gets out and that people have a chance to hear the proclamation of the gospel of jesus because he wants his kingdom advanced there's other parts where scripture will explicitly say this is god's will for us And so maybe we start aligning ourselves in those ways. And then as we are living our life in obedience, as we are on mission with God, then God begins to reveal to us through his word, through prayer, through circumstances, and through other people of, oh, here's a specific route that you're wanting me to take as I'm on mission with you. That's something to ask whether you are 15 or whether you are 50 or whether you are knocking on heaven's door is God, what is your will? and then I want to align my life to that. And then, man, I think he's going to start revealing some things, some incredible things to you. So encouragement needed for God's people, God's presence, God's plan. Finally, God's protection. God specifically says, I'm going to protect you, Paul. But notice this is a specific protection to Paul. Sometimes you could read this and go, well, does that mean I can do whatever I want? Nothing bad is going to happen to me? No, this is what he says to Paul. And even beforehand, he's had other instances in other cities and in other mission trips of where he's been beaten with rods, stoned with rocks, left for dead. He's been imprisoned. And later on, after this year and a half, he's going to get thrown in prison again, and he's going to be martyred for his faith. He's going to be shipwrecked. I mean, he's going to be beheaded because of his faith in Jesus. This specific protection is, Paul, in this city, in Corinth, you're going to have a season of time where you're under my specific protection. In fact, they give an example of it. Over the year and a half, they just seem to be just kind of moving and shaking and just sharing the gospel, no issues. And then in verse 12, did you see what it says? But while Gallio was pro of Achaia, it seems like the political scene shifted. We're not going to get into politics, but sometimes politics shift. Things change. And what happened for a year and a half was Paul seemed to have some religious freedom. To be able to proclaim the gospel of Jesus without any repercussions. And man, he took advantage of it. But then something shifted to where the, the mob, if you will, were like, man, we can't really do anything to get after Paul. Something changed, and now they're like, now we can go get him. And they do. They go after him, and they bring him to what's called the judgment seat. Some of you may have heard of the Bema seat. They brought him to the Bema seat. All that simply is, is in Corinth, there was the marketplace, and someone specifically Gallio, the governor, the proconsul, the judge, would come to the marketplace. There would be this area that would be set up and there would be a judgment seat where you would stand as a person being judged on some kind of trial and you, you would, the judge would hear all the different evidence and he would make a judgment upon you. And so what Paul's doing here is something's changed. He's now no longer really protected anymore, though he's still being protected here. And he's about to give a defense and before he even opens his mouth, Gallio' is like, no, this isn't even my business. And, and, and through this guy, through Gallio, Paul is still protected. God is still watching out for him in this moment. Now, part of why I bring that up is this. The political scene changes, and the political scene can even change within our country. Religious freedom is it's not a right, it's a blessing. We think that it is because of our constitution, but... As we know, constitutions and different things can change, be amended. And so what we want to do is seize the opportunity of the blessing that we have. Because we can look around countless countries throughout today and all of history that religious freedom wasn't their right. And some of them are experiencing hardship right now, but they're remaining steadfast to what God has for them. That we would choose, regardless of the blessings that we have, we remain steadfast for the mission of the Lord. But while we have them, man, capitalize on it. You have the freedom to proclaim Christ without any real repercussions other than they might call you a name. And capitalize on that because it might be a year and a half later and all of a sudden things change. It changed for Paul in a moment and a mob has got him bringing him before the court system. But by God's grace, he's protected in that court system. And so... God's protection is ultimately upon all of our lives. Do you you get that? That if you have faith in Christ, though sometimes this may not be the most comforting of words, there is a hope that we have that this is not our home. There is another home for us. That even if you take my life, and yeah, there's certain ways I would rather it not be taken, I have a hope, which is an encouragement, that I will have a crown of victory awaiting me because I chose to remain steadfast for the name and the cause and the glory of Jesus. And can I just add this because we don't have time to get into it? One day, all of you will stand at the Bema seat, the judgment seat, even as a Christian, and you will give an account for all that you have done. Second Corinthians chapter five. Go read it later. We don't have time to get into it. So, what we have is now a bit of a transition. Look at verse 18. In verse 18, can we go ahead and throw up that map? For time's sake, I'm gonna believe that you guys are gonna read 18 through 23, Uh, but for our purposes to kind of keep things going, I'm just gonna kind of show you what happens. So Paul's in Corinth, it's time for him to leave. He's gonna make his way over to Ephesus. Priscilla and Aquila, they come with him. But Paul's point isn't just to go to Ephesus, he ultimately wants to go to Jerusalem. We find out kind of why he stops from Corinth to Centria to get a haircut. I love that that's just this little thing added. Did you notice that? He got himself a haircut. Why? Because he had a vow. Most people think it's because he had the vow of a Nazarite, which is you're going to let your hair grow out. So he cut his hair, and something that you would do with a Nazarite vow is he's bringing literally his hair to Jerusalem. And so as a result, he makes his way from Centuria, he's got to stop at Ephesus because they probably didn't have like a one-way all the way to Caesarea, and so he makes his way into Ephesus. And in Ephesus, he's got to continue on. And what's so funny to me is this: every city he goes into, goes into a synagogue, talks to him about Jesus, and they run him off. We don't want to hear anymore. He finally gets into Ephesus. He's talking in the synagogue, and they're like, "Will you stay longer?" We want to hear more. I got to go. And so he just takes off and he's like, No, 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 I got to go, but I'm going to leave Priscilla and Aquila here in Ephesus, but I'm going on. He ports at Caesarea, kind of the main port in this area. He makes his way up. You'll see it doesn't say Jerusalem. When it says it goes up to the brethren, it's talking about Jerusalem, the church of Jerusalem. Makes his way to Jerusalem, hangs out there for a little bit, but then he goes back to his home base of Antioch, his home church. And then in verse 23, it's super, super brief. The third missionary journey starts. He's there for a little bit of time, and then he's going back into the region of Galatia. Why? Because he wants to encourage these guys. And what I find is a principle and a rhythm of Paul. Minister to anybody and everybody that is around you, but have a consistency with those that God has placed upon your heart. And I love the fact that we have a partnership with the DR. That we're not a one-and-done kind of church they so were like, oh, we'll go here one year and there one year and there one year. So one of the things that I was just drawn to whenever I got to visit with Doug about Revision and the ministry and the DR is we want to build a relationship so that when you go, and did you know this summer, you can go July 23rd through July 30th, write it down because there's going to be some deadlines for you to get to go. Uh, July 23rd through July 30th, go ahead and ask off for work, do it. I promise you, you give yourself one week in the DR, it will impact the rest of your year. July 23rd to July 30th, we have a chance to go back in there. For some of us who've had the chance to go once or many times, you're going to go back and to be able to see relationships of, man, that kid has grown. Wow, this church has grown. Or, man, things have actually gotten harder. How can I help? Like, there's something about partnering with, with, with a group and with the people and being able to go back again and again. And I would encourage you now to begin thinking and praying about, what would that look like for me, my family? What would that look like? And so that's the transition piece. And now we're going to finish with this. Encouragement not only needed, but number two, encouragement that is given. We're going to fly through this because of time. So we're introduced to a guy by the name of Apollos. Apollos is a guy that you read about in other parts of scripture, but look at what it says. Verse 24, now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, well, he came to Ephesus. So Paul is over here doing his thing. He, 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 he's made his way to Antioch, Caesarea. So there's kind of this like little side journey of like, meanwhile, in Ephesus. And so in Ephesus, he's there and he was mighty in the scriptures. All that means is he knew his Old Testament. He knew that, that part of the Bible because there wasn't a New Testament. Um, this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. What that means is that that's a common phrase in the Old Testament of people knew the way of the Lord. They knew, again, their Old Testament scripture. They knew the sacrificial system and the prophecies and all that kind of stuff. It says, being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John, and he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But notice this: But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, to Corinth, essentially, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures, note the difference now, that Jesus was the Christ. Now, in my study, and my understanding of this, and I did a bit of a deep dive on this, is I believe that when Priscilla and Aquila are sitting in that church service, listening to this really eloquent orator, that is Apollos, explain the Old Testament scriptures, that they're just kind of like, wow, but at the same time, they're like, that's a little bit off. There's actually some missing pieces. And I believe the missing piece is this. He had heard about Jesus. Maybe he'd heard even some of the miraculous things that Jesus had done. Maybe even the crucifixion, maybe even rumors of the resurrection but what we can see here is he's not yet proclaiming Jesus as the Christ. You, you, you don't see that until after the conversation with Priscilla and Aquila. He, he knew of Jesus, just like people today know of Jesus. Jesus was a good man. Jesus was a great teacher. Jesus was a great prophet. But is Jesus the Christ? Is he God's son? Is he the only means of salvation Is there no other name under heaven by which men must call upon to be saved? That Jesus. Because he's still focused on the baptism of John, which was a baptism of repentance. But even John was like, man, I'm unfit to even untie Jesus's sandals and he's wanting me to baptize him. There's one greater than me. And at this point, Apollos doesn't know Jesus as Lord and Savior from my understanding of reading this. And what happens is Aquila and Priscilla, they have a couple of options of what they could do in this moment. They could sit back in the synagogue and go, well, he's off. Paul wouldn't have done that. And kind of roll their eyes and be like, Paul is just a young kind of brash kid. And you just go about your day. You never deal with anything. Or they could stand up in the middle of the service and be like, heresy, that's just a false teacher right there. Sit down. Talk about Jesus. He's the anointed one. Or maybe they went down to the local like, newspaper tablet shop and was like, I want you to put something in there. I need to let people know. That guy, he's not a good teacher. And you go, oh, Stephen, that's weird. That's crazy. Man, we do that all the time when we show up at church is we listen to someone teach and go, well, he's not quite, you know, Billy Graham. Or we roll our eyes. Or we get onto social media. Or we talk to our friends. And we gossip. And we tear down. But what I love about Priscilla and Aquila is they have a heart for this young man. And they pull him aside. No, notice the three things, and we're done the three things that they do. They talk to Apollos by hearing and listening to him. And when you listen to someone, you know how to respond to them. They're hearing what Apollos actually has to say. The second thing is they take him aside. They don't embarrass him. Who likes to be embarrassed? Not me. (laughs) Who likes to be called out? Not me. They took him aside. They pulled him aside and said, hey, because I care about you. Let's have a real conversation in this moment. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna beat around the bush. I'm gonna, te- I'm gonna tell you the truth. I'm gonna explain the, the way more accurately to you because I care, but, but man, I, I'm gonna take you aside. And then the third thing is they explain. Just like Paul, like they had seen Paul do time and again, they explain the scriptures. They explain the way, they explain Jesus. And we're like, wow, oh, wow, that's incredible. That's Priscilla and Aquila. But remember, these are just these tent makers living their life, and then they get hooked up with Paul, and they are on fire for the Lord and making the name of Jesus be, be made known. With Priscilla and Aquila, we're introduced to them in chapter 18 of Acts that we saw today, verses 2, 18, and 26. Earlier, we read in our scripture readings from Romans and 1 Corinthians. There's another one in 2 Timothy. And what we have is, is, is listen to this, and we'll be finished. In 1 Corinthians, it says, the churches of Asia greet you. So Paul is writing this letter later in his ministry to the church of Corinth that he's just now left. And he says, hey guys, the churches in Asia, can we throw that map back up? I'm sorry. The churches in Asia greet you. Paul is writing this, we believe, while he is in Ephesus. And he says, Aquila and Prisca, you go, well, who's that? He didn't get remarried. This is the same wife. It's just kind of a shortened name. it's like Tiffany or Tiff. You've heard me call her that. So Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is, note this, in their house. So the tent business is blowing up. They, they, they got to buy a house and now the church is meeting in their house in Ephesus. Notice the next thing. In Romans, keep that map up. In Romans 16, we read it earlier. Paul is writing to the church of Rome, which he's never been to. And he says, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risk their own necks to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. So when Paul's writing Romans, apparently at some point they leave Ephesus, make their way back to Rome. Tim Business is still doing really, really good. They get, their, they get another house and the church is meeting in that house. And what I love about it is this. When Paul, when Paul writes the letter to, uh, to the Church of Rome, it's like, who am I going to send this to? I know. He gets an envelope, he writes down, Aquila, Priscilla, Church of Rome. Wraps it up, sends it off. Second Timothy chapter 4. This is the end of Paul's life. He's about to die, about to be martyred for the faith. He's writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, his protege. And at the very end of his life, he says, Timothy, man, greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. At the end of his life, he talks to his son in the faith, Timothy, and he sees right next to Timothy, the same people that encouraged me throughout my entire ministry. I see them right by you. You see, when he wrote 2 Timothy, Timothy is the pastor of Ephesus. And we understand that the church is still probably meeting in the house of Priscilla and Aquila. This is later in his life, so maybe they've made their way back. And so, (laughs) he's like, man, I got to get this letter to Timothy. How am I going to get it there? Oh, yeah. House of Priscilla and Aquila. Good stamp. Send it off. Sometimes we don't know much about these people. We get to the ends of these letters, these epistles, and we go, this is the boring part. This is just a list of names. Oh, it's so good. You get to see the people that are needed and that make an impact. And sometimes we think, man, I'm not a good orator. I'm not a good speaker. I'm not really good at at maybe sharing my faith. You know what Priscilla and Aquila were really good at? Opening up their home for the church to meet. They were great encouragers. They come alongside people and just love on them. How can you leverage with what you have and with what you are good at for the glory of the Lord? How how can you do that in, in Mission Point and in this community to leverage what you have for the glory of the Lord? And so as we, as we finish our time, man, community is, is, is incredibly needed and incredibly sweet. But well man, when we get on board with the cause behind that, which is to glorify the Lord, then maybe you get to have an impact like a Priscilla and Aquila who, because of them, <laughs> 1 Corinthians is a reality. Second Corinthians is a ra- reality. The book of Ephesians is a reality. The book of Romans is a reality. The church in Ephesus is a reality. The church of Rome is a reality because of their faithfulness to the ministry of the Lord. And they got to partner with Paul and with Timothy. How are you going to be partners in that? And so as we close, as we pursue those that we live, work, and play with, how can you come alongside and, and provide encouragement to them? because they, they, they very well may need it. And then also, some of you right now, you're like, I need encouragement. Who's gonna encourage me? Can I just ask you for just a moment, because it's easy again to become insular and insulated and kind of go, is anybody there? Take a moment to just look up and beyond and just see, man, there are people in this room sitting next to you. There are people in your small groups that are sitting around you. That there are people in this life that God has brought to you in your life Will you choose to invest with them and live life with them. And as we do so, We will receive and see the encouragement that is coming our way and we will be lifted up because as I've told you before, we're not intended to live this life on our own. Paul did for a while and it wore him out. We're created for relationship, primarily with him, Jesus, but also with each other. We need us. We need each other. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your presence Thank you for your plan. Thank you that even right now you're protecting us. And Father, I pray that as we finish our time just in worship of you, as we sing, I pray that for any person in this room right now who is just hurting, is distressed, discouraged, depressed, Lord, that, that perhaps today that they could, they could look up and